The more you sweat in peace, said Norman Schwarzkopf, the less you bleed in war. Well, better late than never. Lord, bless us to do the work we need to do to bring the victory of which we dream. I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is the Jewish Heroism Project. A conversation on heroism with Gil Troy. Okay, I am here with Gil Troy, historian, author, Zionist thinker, and I might even say thought leader in the things to come for Israel. No pressure, Gil, but uh, we're expecting big things today. Thank you so much for joining me. Honored to be with you. Uh, so I want to dive in with the situation which we're facing personally, nationally, you know, as a people around the world. And that's, of course, the war in which we are currently engaged. And, you know, I'm sure it'll come up along the way, some broader questions. But I, I want to start with something a little bit more personal, because I've found that so many assumptions have fallen by the wayside. So many new challenges have arisen. I'm curious what you see in yourself. What's one way in which you've changed in the face of the events of the last two months? It's, a, it's an excellent question. I've actually had to deal with sorrow and mm. tragedy and heartbreak in ways I never had. I'm a spoiled brat of history. You know, I'm uh, one of the luckiest Jews in the world. I was born in, uh, I, I call us, we were the, the Eastern European boat people, right? My grandparents right. came over uh, with their some with parents and without parents from the in that ba- wave from 1880 to 1920 and growing up in the 60s and the 70s we all knew we were the luckiest jews in history we hadn't gone through the great depression we hadn't gone through the horrors of the pogroms we weren't born in pogromville we weren't born in holocaust land right i'm not a holocaust survivor kid which comes with its own form of intergenerational trauma sure. uh, and as much as we honored the israelis we all, we knew they had this big target on their back now all of a sudden on October 7th, and I think many of my friends in the United States of America are feeling it too, but certainly as someone who 16 years ago came on sabbatical and never left and has four kids who have served in the army and three currently deployed uh, mm-hmm. and also has, uh, I have a first cousin and my wife has a first cousin. Each of us had first cousins on the Otef, on, on, on the Gaza corridor that day, each of whom, thank God, survived. Wow. We God. have skin in the game. We uh, are threatened in a way that we never imagined before. And our young kids in their 20s endured more loss on that day than I have in my entire life. I'm lucky. My mother lived until she was 86. I have a 93-year-old father. Um, I, I, I really had like a very, very good life. And to wake up every day and see what my kids have gone through. One of my sons has buried 11 friends. And that's wow. in a close circle. Um, he, he can't count you know, the people he knows. So much of that, my, my, my cousin in, in uh, Kibbutz Nirim, her entire socio-communal uh, world has been devastated. And I've gone to these heartbreaking funerals. I've gone to these heartbreaking shivas. We actually had to kind of make like a, a policy in our heads, right? Just emotionally. The, we, and I, I so admire people who just go to a shiva of a, stra- of a stranger. But we have so many in our circle who have endured loss that just emotionally, both to protect us and to have enough love and support for them, we only go to shivas and funerals where either we know the person directly, we know the you know the mourner directly, or we're re- representing one of our kids who can't go there because they're deployed. And even that, wow. you know, so that whole emotional dimension, and then on top of it, waking up every day, knowing that there are Jews, and there are young Jews, because the Bibas family is still missing, 
who potentially are in captivity simply because they're Jewish, and there were non-Jews who were in captivity simply because they were Israel-adjacent or Israel-friendly, is devastating. So we've had to kind of rethink emotionally who we are and how we manage and how we handle ourselves, even while having to function at a higher level than usual, because we have to be supporting our kids, we have to be supporting our troops, those of us who are at a, a certain age have to be functioning when the rest of the country isn't. And so yeah. it's been very, very difficult uh, emotionally. I will say, and I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, ideologically, I'm not in the crisis that many of my friends are, certainly my friends in the United States of America, partially because I had much lower expectations. I had already seen where the Ivy League and the professoriate was going. I never had any delusions that Hamas was pragmatic. And by the way, I don't just blame the Netanyahu government and the idea for their conceptia, I point out that every single ma major American Jewish leader, every American uh, foreign policy expert, every American president put pressure on Israel to see it that way. It's a much broader conception or misconception. So ideologically, I haven't had to change. And in fact, in many ways, my Zionism has only been reinforced. But well, I want to speak about that shortly. It's yeah. Emotionally, it's been very, very difficult. So, I mean, that's a very important insight that grief is a it demands not just energy but it demands a shift i mean i share very much your experience uh, my wife and i have joked that we i mean i grew up in the 70s and 80s so that's like even safer right, right. um i happen to be a third generation you know Holocaust, and and heard a lot of stories and there's certainly baggage that comes with that but practically speaking there has not been a generation that has gloried in the ease of jewishness more than i and, sure. and and I think that you're putting your finger on the grief is very important um, because I, I'm not so sure that we've really begun process it. I mean, just I mean, I, I don't necessarily want to go too deeply into this, but I'm curious. Um, what do you do to hold that grief? Do you have any insights that anyone <laughs> listening? Because I know there's a lot of grief and a lot of it remains unnamed, and even that which is named remains undealt with. Do you have any just insights from your own experience? Before I get to that, let me, let me let me jump ahead. One of the things that I most fear in the day after, everybody's talking about the day after the political arrangements. Sure. When our kids come home, and of course we pray that every one of them comes home shalem physically, right? And emotionally. Every single one of them will have paid a price emotionally. Yes. Again, go to my beloved cousin, Akibat Sunim. She's one of the lucky ones because she was in her safe house for 11 hours and came out without right. a hair on her head uh, upset. She has her daughter who was, who was in a similar house and they didn't break into her house. They only, of, of the people in her immediate family, they only broke into the house where her son-in-law was sitting with his three daughters, um, her three grandkids aged two, four, six, and he had an M16. And so at a certain point, he told his kids to hold their ears and close their eyes and boom, he killed a terrorist in his house. So wow. all of them physically came out okay. It's a miracle. But emotionally? Yeah. Right. The the current grief and the post trauma. So I'm I I, I look I I'll, I'll tell you my personal coping mechanism and then go broader. You know every day, I um I read I read and something gets stuck in my head, and it goes to the back of my mind because I'm busy. But then when mm -hmm. I try to go to sleep, a little one more ugly detail from October seventh, one heartbreaking story of some twenty one year old who wrote a will before going into Gaza and his parents now had to read it. Yeah, the, the stories have been so heartbreaking, so devastating. And that's what stuck, sticks, stays in your head when you're trying to go to sleep, right? The rest of the day, you're trying to be busy. Sure. And so um, 
and, and that's when you really have to to cope. Now, one thing I'm lucky uh, as as a writer who's writing about these issues, I have the healthy delusion that what I write makes a difference. So even though I, I I'm I'm modest enough to know that it doesn't, it at least keeps me busy. So I well, found, as a reader, I want to tell you, you're not wasting your time. Well, kind of you to say, but uh, I wasn't fishing a compliment. I was just saying that if if I if I believe, you know, I, I say writers have to be the most megalomaniacal people in the world because they really have to believe that every comma, every sentence, or you, every podcast means so much, right? And that's the that's the caringness you invest in your writing. But if sure. you really believed it, you'd be impossible and insufferable. So you have to yes. have a healthy balance, right? A, a healthy balance of humility. Um, and you also know how, you know, it doesn't really make a difference, but well said. it keeps me busy. So I work late at night. And then by the time I get I I, 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 I get to bed, I'm, I, I, there's a certain kind of exhaustion which overtakes it. But I, I think the thing that has been most helpful and one of the reasons why I wouldn't want to be anywhere else during this difficult period and why when the years when I lived in Montreal and we happened to be here during the 2006 Lebanon war or during various terrorist attacks, there was nowhere else I'd rather be is because every single day I come across amazing heroes. Mm. Every single day I come across amazing inspiration. Every single day I see stories of, of, of physical courage, of spiritual courage. I hear about that mother who's, the, the mother of one of the three hostages whose son was killed by mistake and reaches out to the soldiers. Yeah, I hear about what our kids are doing and I'm able to balance out. And Judaism has this very important notion of hakaratatov, of being able to acknowledge the good. And so to balance all the evil, and there's evil in the world, and there's evil that is coming at us again and again, hidden in what I call hospitals and hidden in mosques and hitting in um, in killer gardens, where they take the most beautiful aspects of civilization. Of course, we don't attack religious institutions. Of course, we don't attack medical facilities. Of course, we don't attack schools. But what do you do when they're hiding terrorists there and weapons and tunnels? And that's why they hid them there. And that's why they do it. And they, they play on us. So we're fighting evil. And I could my 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 soul could turn so black. But I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Because I am part of this amazing network called the Jewish people and an even greater network called the pro-Israel community. And you can criticize them in various ways, but I can say thank you to President Biden for getting up and saying, don't, don't, don't. I'm so lucky and we're all so lucky that we have a Democratic president because if it was only a Republican president, Trump or not Trump, then too many Democrats would be saying, oh, you can't you can't be supporting uh, Israel. And because the Democratic president building on the Democratic presidency and the democratic tradition of support for Israel is supporting Israel. The Republicans are also supporting him. And so most members of Congress and most senators are supporting Israel. It didn't become a partisan issue. Yeah. So there have been that. a whole series, first of all, of miracles, but more important, human-made wonders, wonders that balance out the grief. And and that's the thing, you know, Miriam Peretz, who's lost two sons um, uh, to terrorists, says something really profound. She's like the mother of the Medina. She's, um, she says, we almost had her as president. She, right. She says, uh, their goal is to rob us of our joy. Their goal is to rob us of our normalcy. So every time I smile, every time I laugh, every time I celebrate, I'm honoring my kids. I'm not dishonoring them. And that's also a very Jewish idea that grief should never, God forbid, stop you from enjoying. If there's a wedding that's, that's planned, you continue it. And that's a profound Jewish idea, but it's also, it's what I call the Zionist jujitsu. We take the negative and turn it into a positive. So 
So, you know, I just read uh, an article you wrote recently about a topic that's very close to my heart, and it's about moral clarity. Um, I, I have a sense that there's a certain gvura, a certain power that we gain from from identifying evil, as you just did. Um, and I guess my question for you is, given that you have moral clarity, what's the call to action? Right? You know, because we see people raising their hands all the world for good and for evil. And and truth is, there's moral clarity on both sides of that equation. And one of the challenges that we face is that our enemies have no doubt about what needs to be done. But I think there's many people who aren't necessarily in the thick of it, who are wondering what they can do. What is the call to action that you feel that moral clarity makes? So, you know, morality in wartime is such an interesting thing. Wearing my American history hat or mortarboard, I say <laughs> that morality in wartime is like uh, vegetarianism among cannibals that you, you, it, it doesn't make sense, right? There's no, war is evil, right? Well, I'm going to quote you on that. <laughs> no, I, I'm serious. Like, as, taking, a, as a vegetarian of 30 years, I will quote you on that. <laughs> taking our 18-year-olds, our 20-year-olds, and forcing them to bomb human beings, forcing them to go into tanks, these, these, these machines of destruction, and wipe out um, people in front of them is horrific. But because we don't live in a perfect world, there's a higher morality that says, and I learned this from World War II, what the Americans did and the British did. I learned this from the fight in Iran. I learned this from the fight in Mosul when America was saving, and America and the Allies were saving a city from evil terrorists. So it wasn't like Gaza where Gazans uh, are Hamas, celebrate Hamas and, 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 and support them and go back and forth. And it still cost 11,000 lives in Mosul to free Mosul from its evil ISIS occupiers. So... With all that, what I say is, and I say this to my kids who are fighting, there's only one morality here. Every evil act that occurred since October 7th is on Hamas. The moral clarity of this war comes from the fact that they set off a chain of reaction. And I say, if God forbid you find yourself in a situation, and this is before the hostage was killed, where you end up shooting your commander in the head by mistake, God forbid, or you're stuck between a friend of yours who's taken hostage and a terrorist with an RPG, and you have to kill your friend. The moral stain is on them, not on you. Your moral responsibility is to take care of yourself, your comrades, and your country. And every book I've ever read about just war says especially the scale of the assault, there's a, there's a scale in wartime, and the scale of the assault and the scale of the evil justifies the reaction. Now, having said that, as a Zionist and as a Jew, I am so proud that we try to be as moral as possible within these insane situations. Because, and this is, I think, this gets to the core of your question. I think we as Jews and as Zionists and as part of the pro-Israel community, we have to start saying, hey, wait a minute. Of course, if we just dropped a whole series of bombs on Gaza, that would be, that's the way America does it. Oh, we We'd can do it. Right? But we have to worry about our own souls. We have to worry about our own narrative. We have to worry about our own limits. And I love the fact that we have an Air Force where they literally know if they're pilots and also if they're um, drone operators, that they operationally have the right at the last minute to veto an operation, to just cancel a, bo a bombing run. And they won't be, uh, they won't get in trouble off the chain of command if they think that there are too many civilians or there's going to be too much what they call, they call it collateral damage. That's also a, a, a wiggle term. It, yeah. it, it, it's, it's unfortunate civilian casualties. I just want to be clear uh, on what you're saying in case people don't understand. I want to make sure I understand yeah. is that 
is what you're saying is that um, the power here is is not that we're kowtowing to judgments of the world or that we're worried about international reaction, that, that we're choosing a, a different moral path in the way we wage war because in the end of the day, the concern is for the souls of our children. And, and the souls of our, of our souls children of, individually. And, and our, our society. And our society collectively, yes. So as That's an American historian, um, I say, you know, you know uh, Henry Ford said, history is bunk, morality in war is bunk. But as a Jew, as a Zionist, and also because in America there also is this debate as a, as a lowercase d liberal Democrat, right? As, as someone who believes in democracy, we do try to be as moral as possible within these moral circumstances, these immoral circumstances. But absolutely... The, the onus is not on us to be moral. They unleashed evil forces and they knew what, 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 it was, gonna, what, what, what was gonna happen in response. So what do we do? And this is, I think, so important for a younger generation, so important for a generation that's not in Israel. We give the mirror test. Can you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I did right by myself, by my community, and by the world. And I know that when our kids go in and are willing to sacrifice life, limb, psychic calm for the sake of the other, for the sake of their people, then they're doing the right thing. And let's be honest, look what's happening with the Houthis, right? Who are these people who are attacking not just Israel, but American, American ships? How is it yeah. that there have been a hundred attacks by quote unquote Iranian proxies on American forces and the Americans are so proud that they're shooting them in the air, but they're not going to the source. One of the things I tell my, my, my soldier heroes, my kids and also those who I encounter, is you are on the front lines of a civilizational war. It's a battle, as you said, about good and evil, but it's also a battle for the West. And if we collapse, and this is, I think, what Joe Biden understands, and Joe, Joe Biden's don't, 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 and the aircraft carriers who sent and the nuclear submarine he sent was a way of saying, I get this. If Israel falls, we all suffer. And by the way, look what's happening in the United States of America. The Lincoln Memorial, defaced. The White House, defaced. The Rockefeller Tree Center, Rockefeller Center uh, tree ceremony, disrupted. Right. Um, a stink bomb was thrown into Macy's uh, on Arab New Year's, on New Year's Eve. Um, what is going on? There's an intertwining between anti-Zionism and anti-Americanism that's being played out in real time. And so this isn't just a propaganda point. I'm seeing what's going on in America. I'm seeing the thuggishness, the hooliganism. And it's very clear who's on one side and who's on the other side. We had 290,000. We had 290,000 Jews on the White House, uh, on the on the Capitol um, Mall, in the Washington Mall. And by the way, one of my students sent me an email. I was here in, in Israel saying, I never felt so lonely. Where were the non-Jews? Next time we have a rally, we have to invite them too. But 290,000 Jews and, and not a flower was trampled. There were 300,000 Palestinians a week earlier, and they went and they put bloody handprints on the White House gates. Whose side are you on? Who do you want to be with? And by the way, I don't envy them. If it takes that kind of hooliganism to get good press, I'm okay with not get such, getting such good press. I'd rather, again, worry about our souls and worry about our morality. But my joke is, and I hope it's not too off color, that if, God forbid, one of the 290,000 Jews had even relieved themselves on the Capitol Mall, right? They would have gotten a ticket on the front page of the Washington Post. <laughs> There's no question about that, especially in the Washington Post. <laughs> the Washington Post and the New York Times did not cover 
what I discovered from NBC Washington 4, which was that red paint was splayed on the on the front of the Lincoln Memorial. Our holy yes. holies as Americans, our Kodesh Kodeshim, it was splayed out and they put free Palestine in red. And the Washington Post didn't even think as a local paper it was worth covering. So, so you know, if the takeaway from your uh, American history hat is uh, is that morality in war is like vegetarianism amongst cannibals, which make sure I got the quote, um, then then I want to I want to tap your your Zionist thinker side for a minute because you know I'm a Zionist. I've been a lifelong Zionist. I was raised that way so much so that I made that crazy move 22 years ago that the future of the Jewish people lies here. Um, and I don't know if I ever conceived of it in this way, but from what I've learned about Zionism is that there's a significant element within Zionist thought and action, which revolves around never again. So I'm wondering, do you think that the events of Simchat Torah of October 7th um, gave a lie to the Zionist promise? So it's funny, I'm literally writing my column for this week into the Jerusalem Post about that. And I started off by reading the sermon, Hadrisha, which is an amazing short story written in 1942, in the middle of the Shoah, here in Israel, by Chaim Chazaz, a Ukrainian-born uh, writer. And he struggles with this. He says, Jewish history? I hate Jewish history. In Jewish history, we're just losers, suffering. We wallow in our weakness. We wallow in our suffering. The Zionist has to defeat the Jew. And I know a number of people saying, oh, Zionism failed on October 7th. Well, yes, I know that Theodore Herzl hoped and dreamed that um, anti-Semitism would disappear with Zionism. But the fact that Jew hatred not only continued, but morphed into Israel became the Jew of the nations. It's not my fault. It's their fault. Why are we blaming the victim? The fact that Jew hatred survived the Holocaust, the fact that Jew hatred survives is not a failure of Zionism. It's a failure and it's not a failure of the Jews, it's a failure of the Jew haters. Now, yes, there is a streak in Zionism, which vowed never again, but it didn't promise it. The vow of never again is a slogan. What does that mean? It means that never again, there's a second half to it, will we be led like lambs to the slaughter. And what I'm calling October 7.2, look what happened within seconds of the failure of the IDF to defend us that day, the IDF, not Zionism, of the failure of the Israeli government to defend us that day, Within seconds, we were fighting back. And if we didn't have the Zionist ethos of fighting back, our country might have collapsed that day. And we certainly would have had 10 times, if not 100 times, the number of casualties. But the fact that so many citizens, because we've raised a citizen army, mobilized. The fact that so many soldiers, I know of a, of a beautiful family, uh, the son of a, of a prominent rabbi. I think they live somewhere in Beersheba. They heard two brothers, they jumped in the car, they went with their gear, they started fighting and they never came home. The Slutsky brothers. We know so many stories of people who went and I'm not the wrong generation, five, six guys from commando units find one another, they say, oh, you know what? Let's go to this um, intersection, Reim, because we imagine if there really is an invasion, that's where they're going to go with their tender trucks to go all the way up to Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Tel Aviv. And they created their own little ambush there. But you know what they did before they got out of their, their car when they got there? They made a WhatsApp group. Wouldn't have crossed my mind on the wrong generation. <laughs> and so they used their unbelievable skill, their unbelievable grit, their unbelievable training, and their unbelievable Zionist spines to make sure that, yes, October 7th was the worst day in Jewish history 
since the Shoah. But it was not the failure of Zionism. The success of Zionism, October 7.2, was that we were able to, within 24 hours, free our country from the invaders and then take back the night. So in a sense, it was a failure of the state, perhaps. And that's a that's an analysis it's which is, right. is, is lying on the horizon. And I think rightly so on the horizon. Now is not the time... Right for that but 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 i think it's very strong what you're saying is that zionism wasn't really about the state in the end right. it was about imbuing a people with an ethos where that we would no longer be passive in the face of history writ large nor the specifics of a circumstance that we face i think it's an excellent answer and one so, after other took history by the by, by the horns and wrestled and paid a high price and bled yes, yes. but but saved us yes so uh i want to just shift gears for one second. I'm in the midst of a brand new project. It's called the Jewish Heroism Project. Um, and, and part of my goal is to provide a definition for heroism. You know, because when I speak to most Jews about heroism, they don't associate Torah or Judaism with, with a heroic tradition, which is a little bit sad to me, to be honest with you. Uh, I ask Jews about heroism, and they start telling me about Greek mythology or, or uh, I don't know, uh, native, uh, native stories. I say, Jews and heroism, even though not only do we have, I believe, one of the most heroic traditions around, but as you just pointed out, it's alive and well. I mean, Greek mythology may have been cool in its day, but uh, what's it what's it offered to me lately, right? Um, so I, I would like to hear how you would define heroism. Heroism is being willing to stand up for what you believe and knowing that you're, there are certain things you're willing to die for and that gives your life meaning. And so heroism, and, and that gives you that if, if you really know what you're willing to die for, then you know what you're willing to live for. That by having core principles and every now and then when necessary, standing up for them and, and, and when history sometimes comes and knocks you over the head, not letting yourself knock down, or if you get knocked down, you brush yourself up and you stand up again. But knowing who you are, knowing what you want to stop, what you're willing to live, to die for helps you know what you're willing to live for. And heroism comes in two forms. There's physical heroism and spiritual heroism. And you're right, the Western world, and especially the Hollywood world, and we all live in Hollywood, um, is, 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 is addicted to physical heroism. Let's call it Tom Cruise heroism. But, um, but true heroism is not just the physical, but also the spiritual. Not just fighting, but also knowing when to overcome your evil impulses. Um, knowing when to stand up on campus. When I speak to young uh, Jewish students and pro-Israel students on campus today, I say, you know, my, 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 my kids who serve in the army, they certainly have a lot of physical heroism and a lot of spiritual heroism. But the one thing they know is that when they come home, when they walk around the streets, when they walk into a falafel joint, they get, and I teach them the Hebrew word, firgun, which is this lovely word, which isn't easily translated, which is kind of like, attaboy, high five, you're the best, where you're serving, kolakavod, we love you. You're at Harvard, you're at UPenn, you're at Rutgers, you're at Michigan, you're at Berkeley. You stand up for Israel. You stand up for the Jewish people. You get the opposite of fear, Goon. You might get ostracized. You might uh, get a lower grade. You might get canceled. You might, God forbid, lose some likes on your Instagram. And so to stand up, even though you're not really physically threatened on college campuses these days, emotionally and psychically you are and so you have a choice and it's a spiritual choice it's a form of spiritual courage you have a choice 
you can decide, decide, oh, I want to be one of those swivel-headed academics who's always looking over his, her, his or her shoulder saying, oh, am I popular? Do they like me? And you know what happens at the end of the day? You get a neck ache. Or you can be one of those rare, rare academics and one of those rare, rare students these days who says, no, I have to have a mirror test. I have to look at myself in the mirror every day. And by the way, you know, I came to campus many years ago and loved the American campus and saw the American cha campus change. And I should say North American, because it also happened in Canada where I was teaching. And it's it's a hole in my heart because I'm a case of arrested development. I got to the university and I never left. I love the university system. I worship the university system, but not a university system that's full of propagandists, not a university system that judges my students, not by the quality of their analysis, but by how fully they buy into one political perspective or another political perspective. And I realized that I didn't want to live in that system. And so I blew my life up and came to Israel too, like you did. Uh, and part of it, it's, I mean, it's the best thing I ever did, but it was, it meant wrenching myself from that world. And it's a world where you're always looking over your shoulder, a world where you're always judged by your peers, a world where you're always trying to prove yourself to others. Intellectually, by the number of papers you might have, or these days just by the color of your skin, I'm sorry to say, or your gender, but not by the quality of your conscience. And one of the things I try to tell students is I made a choice. I don't, I, it worked for me for various reasons, but I sleep well at night despite my grief. Because when it comes to checking in with who I am and who I want to be and who I want to show my kids who I am, they're seeing somebody who was willing to sacrifice and live by his principles. So do you think that there's a particularly Jewish form of heroism? So look, I learned a lot about spiritual heroism from my from the Jewish sources. Uh, I, I, it's true. I learned, you know, fun Greek myth mythology, um, but uh, but often the Greek the Greek uh, heroes were, were were despicable human beings. Yeah, and, morally speaking, not the greatest guides. Right. <laughs> so if we talk, and 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 of course, look, we learn in 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 Breshit and Genesis, which we just finished reading, that not every one of our forefathers and foremothers was perfect, right? And that that's that's a, because we're human beings. But if we, let's say we just finished the, the holiday of Hanukkah and the back and forth between spiritual power and physical power. And I think experiencing Hanukkah during this post-October 7th period uh, was really a moment where every day, every day we had heard, heard horrific stories. Uh, two, three, four of our best and brightest fell. And, 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 and that Hanukkah was actually particularly painful Hanukkah because we had 11 die one day. It was, and, and then at the very end, the three hostages were killed. It was it was a it was the bloodiest Hanukkah in years, yeah. in decades, perhaps even in centuries. But also, we've come to eliminate the darkness, the spiritual power that we saw every day on those eight days of Hanukkah, the spiritual power we saw, as I mentioned, to that mother who reached out to the soldiers who mistakenly killed their kid, the spiritual power we saw in our own. In our own children, I, I see over your uh, head, you have younger kids. To be a young kid in Israel these days isn't such a picnic, right? It's got yeah. its own set of terrors. And to be the parent guiding a young kid, what do I tell them? What do I not tell them? I myself don't want to see everything that's being posted. What do I deny? What do I not deny? How do we navigate these? These are very, these. this is spiritual power. And I learned this from the greatness of Moses, who despite having a speech impediment, stands up and speaks out to Pharaoh. And despite being able to live a very nice life in Midian, decides to go back and be with his people. Um, 
there there are so many stories that we have in the Tanakh, in the in in, in the Torah, in the Bible of of of, of, of spiritual power and physical power and the dance between them that um, I feel lucky that I was born into that. And, you know, as an American Jew, I was born into two heroic traditions. By the way, everybody says, what made you a historian? I, said, I don't know. Every holiday that I liked from Thanksgiving and July 4th on the American side to Hanukkah and Purim and Pesach on the other side was all about history and all about heroes. What do you expect? How could I not become a historian? It is quite enchanting. I agree with you. So part of what I hear you saying is that the particularly Jewish aspect of heroism is this dance, as you called it, between the spiritual and physical. That 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 um, we don't have purely physical heroes, as you see in in say that Greek mythological tradition, um, and the abstract spiritual. While there may be a, a, a an element of that within our tradition, in the end of the day, uh, you didn't say this, but I heard it coming very clear through your words: is that that we're people of action. So there's there, there's no sitting on the hilltop. And, and and achieving spiritual greatness disconnected from the world. So I want to I want to um, sort of uh, maybe bring things to a head in that sense um, with you know through the lens of your experience with with America and as as an educator um, because one of the things that I'm seeing uh, amongst my students amongst my peers back in America and just the people that I work with in my counseling and in general um, is that there is an identity collapse threatening. North American Jewry. I would imagine that it's true of Jewry outside of Israel altogether, but I'm just simply less familiar with the non-English speaking Jewish world. Um, part of that, I, I identify with the fact that um, so much of at least American Jewry's identity was built around the Holocaust and this sense of both memorializing and teaching the Holocaust. And we've seen that if one's goal was continuity, it hasn't really paid off. And if one's goal was to dispel anti-Semitism, well, read the news. Um, so so what I'm wondering is, is what do you think lies next? What what specifically, what do you think this heroism looks like for the American Jewish community today, North American? Um, and do you have any thoughts on the base which would serve to build a new phase of identity? You know, first of all, I certainly agree with you that there's a, 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 a psychic and ideological crisis First of all, there's been an identity crisis building in American Jewry for a very long time because there has to be more to life than getting into Harvard. There has to be more to life. <laughs> That's good for me. <laughs> there has to be more to life than getting the, a sky high S, a, a SAT and um and and a perfect J, GPA and 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 a, and and a full CV. There has to be more. And yet, I, I travel around and I say to young American Jews, I say every rabbi, I'm sorry to say, every teacher you you meet, every Father, mother, grandfather, grandmother, aunt, uncle. What's the first question they ask? Where are you going to school? What are you going to study? That's the messaging. So I say, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, how's your soul? Where's your soul? And they look at me like I'm a crazy person. But we have to have, so we, we even the grownups have to start changing the, the messaging. And yes, you know, if we in Israel and our government in particular, and our soldiers, I'm sorry to say, or our IDF infrastructure, underestimated the evil of our enemies in the Middle East and underestimated our enemies on October 6th, Americans and American Jews overestimated the goodness of their Western neighbors and overestimated the West. And that is a real problem because who do I trust, who do I not trust? And one of the things, I, I, I'll start with a very small thing and then I'll go bigger. One of the things I keep on urging students to do is create a win-win. Let's say you're at Cornell University and some guy online, this happened, threatens sure. to um, 
to 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 any. I think he literally used the word uh, slaughter and rape. Uh, anybody in the kosher dining hall, and he specifically said West One Hundred Four. I think it is. You have a choice. You can either cower and close down the kosher dining hall, and the message is to everybody else: do it again. Every other sure. hater, or weakness invites that, right? Or you can invite the football team and the lacrosse team for free kosher steak, and say, "Come join me." And then you have what I call the win-win. The win-win is either you find out who your fr your friends are, or you find out who your friends are. In other words, either somebody says to you, "You know what?" And this has happened to me before when I I, I put together a petition to fight BDS to fight the boycott at McGill, and a, an, an Italian Catholic friend of mine emailed me and said, "Thank you, Gil. You get I didn't know what to do. You gave me the means for fighting back," and he signed. And others dodged. So you know who, you know where you stand. So I think we have to start being a little more mischievous, a little more impish, and frankly, have a little bit more of a spine and start turning to our non-Jewish friends and saying, hey, wait a minute, we've got a problem. I, I want students going up to professors, the most woke professor in the world, the most anti-Israel professor in the world, and simply going up to them and saying, professor, I'm paying $75,000 a year. With all due respect, I feel a little uncomfortable crossing the quad with people yelling and screaming at me. Would you walk with me? And then all of a sudden, I have clarity. I either see, ah, they're not even willing to walk with me. And I say, you know what? I just want to know that. I just want you to know that I'm going to share that with the president and the board of uh, governors of the university. Or I actually find somebody who, despite being pro-Palestinian, despite having his issues with the Israeli bombing, which you could debate, wants to walk with me as a student and someone who doesn't want thuggery on campus. So I think we haven't been challenging enough and that's the external but the most important yeah. internal thing is this whole debate about you know cornell and all these other uh, dilemmas i think there are two dimensions to it one is the strategic dimension i learned from my parents long before i moved to israel that if bullies bully you and you give in bullies come back to bully you another day and you've been bullied sure, sure yeah. that's blood in the water and look at me i'm not a physically imposing person but they taught me that if, God forbid, you ever get into a fight and you're fighting back because you're being bullied, we will back you. So that's strategic. But the deeper issue is cultural. And when it comes to cultural, let's look at what happened at Cornell University, where this young man threatens Jews, saying, if you come to the kosher dining hall, I'm going to slaughter you and rape you or stab you and rape you. And what did Cornell do? What did the Cornell Jewish community do? They shut down the, the kosher dining hall. What was the message tactically? Ah. Do it again. We'll be bullied again. Yeah. What I wanted them to do was to invite the football team and the lacrosse team and give them free kosher steak. And then you have a win-win. Either you know who your friends are or you know who your friends aren't. And when you when you when you realize, ah, you often find out that there are Jews, there are non-Jews who are willing to come and 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 be by your side. And I was on a, a call with my with, with some friends who are Cornell graduates and saying, What's going on at Cornell? How could this be? And, they, and this goes to the cultural piece. And they said to me, well, what, what do you expect? They're only 18. And I said, look at our 18-year-olds. And yeah. that's a Zionist moment. That's a clarity. That's a moment of clarity. The American Jewish community, I'm sorry to say, unlike the American Jewish community I was raised in, because again, my, my parents were tough Jews from the Lower East Side. And they said, you know, if you get pushed, you push back. The American Jewish community has raised a generation of kids 
who are such achievement machines, who are so concerned with how they look on their college applications, which means how they look to others and are so afraid of standing up for themselves that we're seeing it now. And so there has to be a kind of psychic and cultural revolution within the American Jewish community in which we understand that I wish I lived in a world of of, of, of stars and, 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 and twinkle twinkle and everything else. We live in a tough world and we have these things called enemies. And for too long, I worried that the radar of our next generation was being neutralized and they couldn't even recognize an enemy when it was living next door to them. And now I worry that the enemy has made it so clear that they are the enemy, they don't know what to do. And we have to teach them how to do it. Not with guilt, but with pride. Not with weakness, but with strength. And unlike some Zionist thinkers, I believe with Judaism and with Zionism. Some try to make it an opposite. And I say one, no, one, the other. one reinforces the other. So so the heroism is uh, like a, a psychic cultural shift. More backbone. Uh, a little bit of daring yeah. and, and and a willingness to lean into the situation and not feel that because our allies seem to be fleeing rapidly that we should sort of, um, you know, curry favor, but rather that we should call them out and, and try to, to seize this moment of moral clarity to figure out exactly where we stand and that that itself will line out the path forward. People keep, uh, asking, what's, people keep asking, what's wrong with us? Everybody's accusing. The great Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Moynihan, the great Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, I don't ask what's wrong with the accused. I ask what's wrong with the accuser. Mm. Why at this moment in history are they accusing us? Why are they holding us to a standard that America didn't hold itself to, that Britain didn't hold itself to, that, that the allies never held themselves to? And where are you? Where are you feminists when gendered violence is broadcast on GoPros and, 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 and body cams? Where are you, LGBTQ community? Queers for Palestine? It's like turkeys for Thanksgiving, everybody jokes. What's going yeah. on here? Sorry to make all the vegetarian jokes today. No, but what's okay. going on here? Where, where are your core values? And I call this the triple double cross. They double cross the Jews. Ah, they've been doing that for thousands of years. They double crossed liberal education and liberal ideas. Okay, that's they've been doing it for 50 years. But they double cross themselves too. The triple double cross. So what I hear then is the call to action, this sort of heroic call, is that American Jews need to become a mirror. Like you were saying, that there's a mirror test that each of us needs to face, especially here in the war that we're fighting, to make sure that we're not being guided by the way in which we're worried that the world will perceive us or how it will play in the headlines or certainly on social media. But the guide needs to be, can I look myself in the mirror in the morning and say that I have done what I need to do, and I am the person I need to be. So too that American Jewry needs to hold up that mirror to the world around them, which is of course a very mm -hmm. Jewish stance, historically speaking, and say, we know who we are. Do you see your own face in the mirror of our experience today? I think that's a very powerful call to action. And I, I appreciate it. So we're going to wrap up. Is there anything else um, that you want to say on the topic of uh, heroism and moral clarity? No, just uh, keep on doing what you're doing and um, raise a family of, of of goodness and of which in itself in this crazy world is a family of heroes, because to live oh, a good life, to be from good your people, mouth to from right, your is, mouth to God's and, ears, and that's the thing. Like I, you know, that's uh, that's our challenge, and that's and again, that's our victory because every every bar and bat mitzvah, every engagement, every wedding, every Shabbat minute dinner, every hug, 
every special moment that you have with your family is an act of spiritual resistance because they want to end it. They want to end your lives and they want to end your joy. And we just can't let them take it away. So stay engaged. Yeah. Hold up that mirror to our own moral selves and to the world around us. And that is indeed a heroic dance. Gilchoy, thank you so much for you. sharing your thoughts and your energy. Um, as long as I'm at it, I want to thank all the folks out there that help make this show happen. I want to thank Pardes Institute, B-A-R-D-S.org.il, for throwing the doors of the Beit Midrash open as wide as possible. I want to thank the Land of Israel Network, landofisrael.com. They're building a center for global transcendence in the heart of the Judean mountains. Be in touch with me if you want to know about more about the Jewish Heroism Project, robmikefoy at gmail.com. Go to the website, jewishheroism.com. You'll see the videos, source sheets, and some supplementary materials to help you dive deep into the idea of Jewish heroism. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is the Jewish Heroism Project. <laughs>